we get to share together the next couple of days. We'll spend four or five sessions together. I want to start out tonight just with a perspective of where we are as a nation and a people. Um, we have been blessed in ways that are now under attack. You look at what we have with our documents particularly. This year at the United Nations, we have 195 nations. Now, you look at what we have in the way of stability, it's unprecedented. No other nation's been able to do what we do. You take, we've had one constitution since 1789, and just start looking at the other. Imagine living in a nation with 23 constitutions or 20 or seven. Or, other nations go through revolutions all the time. We've been stable. We've had one revolution, and we just think that's normal, and it's not normal. What we have is not, I mean, look what's going on in Turkey right now. Look what's going on all across the Middle East. Look what's going on in Africa. Choose your continent. There's problems. Today, if you live in South Korea and you are a baby boomer, you've lived through six constitutions in South Korea, which is a fairly peaceful nation. If you live in Poland and you're 95 years old, you have lived through seven constitutions in your lifetime. I mean, we've been blessed, and yet we're under attack, particularly academia doesn't think we're special, doesn't think we should be. If you want to make them mad, you just tell them that America is an exceptional nation. And when you do that, they go through the roof. There's nothing special about America. We're just like all other nations. Every nation's exceptional. Not so. Our stability is one measurement. We also have measurements we use in the way of creativity. And there's a lot of ways to measure a nation's creativity. You can do it by looking at international copyrights, international patents, etc. Now, America, we have 4% of the world's population. And 4% of the world's population should produce 4% of the world's whatever. But when you look at all international measurements on creativity, every year our 4% produces more patents, more copyrights, more medical technology, more scientific innovations, more everything than the other 96% of the world combined. I mean, our little 4% every year beats what's produced by the 96% when it comes to creativity, science, and inventions. And then when you look at our economics... Our economics, we're very blessed as well. We have, again, that 4%, but every year we average producing about 25% of the world's gross domestic product. Now, we don't produce more in America because we have more. There's a lot of continents that have many more natural resources than we do. But we take what we have and make it go so much further than other nations. We've just been blessed in, in amazing, amazing ways. Now, what we look at with this, this, this blessing that we have... If you had been, and, and let me just say up front, we're very blessed. We own about 100,000 documents from before 1812. So I own thousands of the handwritten documents of guys like George Washington and Adams and Jefferson and Madison, etc. And then we own thousands of documents from after 1812. And if you'd looked in our school textbooks up until World War II, through World War II, we consistently told you that all these blessings we enjoy in America, everything that makes America special was specifically because of the Bible. And we set that in our textbooks. Now, try finding that in a textbook today. You're not going to get anywhere close to that. We're told just the opposite. Oh, no, we were founded as a secular nation. The guys who founded us would say, but we weren't. And that's what old textbooks used to point out. It's still easy today to prove what those textbooks pointed to. Now, thank you, Cheryl. These are some of the old originals that we're going to use a little later, some founding father works that I brought to show you the kind of stuff that we don't get taught today. And by the way, I've been appointed in a number of states by state boards of education, by governors, to do the social studies standards in those states. So I see what's in textbooks. I see what we teach. I know what's back there in history. And that's why I get appointed in a number of states to kind of help point things in a, in a truthful direction. Having said that, there's, there's still just a lot of resistance to saying that religion had any influence in America at all. But it's easy to prove even today, even for people who don't realize it. The way we talk to one another 
is shaped by the Bible. We have 257 idioms that we use on a daily basis that are nothing more than direct quotations of Bible verses. Now, most people don't recognize them, but every one of these phrases is a Bible verse. By the skin of your teeth, I'll give you my two cents worth. A leopard can't change the spots. There's nothing new under the sun. Signs of the time, a thorn in the flesh, from the cradle to the grave, handwriting on the wall, a fly in the arm. 257 phrases we use on a daily basis. And I have a lot of fun with this. At the office, we, we collect instances of when the media uses a Bible verse. Now, ESPN quotes the Bible more than any network out there. I guarantee you they don't have a clue what they're saying, but they quote Bible verses all the time. And, you know, if, if you want to have fun sometime, next time you go to McDonald's or Walmart or Home Depot or Macy's, or what, you'll hear somebody use one of those 257 phrases, and you ought to stop them right there and say, do you know what Bible verse you just quoted? Now, they won't have a clue, but the problem is they'll look at you and say, no, I don't. What verse was that? And we won't know either. We don't have a clue where that stuff came from. Now, specifically... This is the address for every one of those phrases, but there's 257 that are direct quotations out of the Bible. I think where America is today is very accurately described by President John Quincy Adams, who said this. He said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. And see, I think where we are today, we've had a cultural default where that if today you had known those 257 idioms, we would have praised you. I can't believe you knew the Bible reference. We would praise you. Back in their day, they would have said, whoa, time out. You didn't know that came out of the Bible? How can you call yourself an educated person and not be familiar with the greatest book in the history of the world? See, the cultural default today is we praise that. Back then, it would have been shameful not to have known that. You also have President Teddy Roosevelt. By the way, for the next several minutes, I'm going to use presidents of the United States. And I do that specifically because you would expect me to say something nice about the Bible. What you don't expect is that for 150 years in American history... It was the presidents of the United States who carried the water on the Bible. They're the ones that all the time were reminding the nation of how important the Bible was. We can't survive without it, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is what Teddy said. He said, the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and so entwined with our civic and our social life. Notice he did not say spiritual life. That's what the people today would say. Oh, the Bible is so much a part of our spiritual life. He didn't say that. He said the Bible is so much a part of our civic and our social life that it would be impossible to figure what life would be if these teachings were removed. He said, you would not even recognize our culture if we took the Bible out. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, the civic institutions that he mentions is so interwoven with the fabric and the culture of our society, our civic and our social life. Take that economic prosperity that we enjoy. That's a result of the free market economic system. The free market economic system historically developed in America about 100 years before it did and so much of the rest of the world. And as you look at its development in America, historically, you find that our free market economic system was built on five Bible verses that folks said, oh, look at 1 Timothy 5.8. Oh, look at 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Oh, wow, Matthew 25, Luke 19, Matthew 20. Those five verses are the basis of the most prosperous economic system in the history of the world. Now, people today didn't know that those five Bible verses had anything to do with our economic history. But if you take away the free market institution that the Bible built, you wouldn't recognize America today. We wouldn't be the same nation without that free market institute that we have. And the same with our form of government. There are seven different human forms of government. The Bible talks about all seven forms of government. The Bible specifically recommends one form more than another. And that's what our founders said. said, we want that one. That's Exodus 18.21, that's what we call a Republican form of government. You choose out leaders. Exodus 18.21 says, choose out from among you 
rulers over tens, over fifties, over hundreds, over thousands. Elect your local county, state, and federal leaders. That's what we want. And so that's the verse they use. said, we want a Republican form of government. Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution prohibits us from ever becoming a democracy. That is one of the seven forms of human government. It's also talked about very explicitly in the Bible, always in a bad light. Republican government, that's good. You find that in, in not only in Exodus 18, 21, but also in Deuteronomy 1, 15 and 16, Deuteronomy 16 and 18. Those are verses they cited when they did this. If you take our Republican form of government out of America, you wouldn't recognize us. But who today knew that our Republican form of government came out of the Bible? Well, those who created it did. They understood. But not today. We don't know that. So that's what he's talking about. If you take what the Bible has produced in America out of the culture, you wouldn't even recognize. And he says our civic and our social institutions, not our faith, our, our, our culture around us, our, our institutions. You also have President Franklin Roosevelt who said this. He said, in the formative days of the Republic, the directing influence the Bible exercised on the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident. Yeah, try finding that in a textbook today. See how conspicuously evident it is. Not there at all, but that's what President Roosevelt said. He said, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible's occupied in shaping the advance of the republic. There's no way you can read American history and not see that every time something went right, it's because we were following the Bible. Every time it went wrong, it's Franklin Roosevelt... I mean, that's not that far away. That's World War II. A lot of people lived to that. They lived with him as president, and that's what we're saying back then. There's no way you can read American history without seeing that when things went right, it's because of the Bible. See, we don't recognize that. Let me give you an example. We know a lot about Ben Franklin. We have 250 folks we call founding fathers. Uh, Franklin, without doubt, is one of the five least religious among the founding fathers. Now, Franklin's unique for a number of reasons. Franklin's the first guy in American history to call for the United States of America. Way back in 1754, 22 years before the American Revolution, he came up with what was called the Albany Plan of Union, which said, hey, let's not be 13 colonies anymore. Let's be the United States. Well, they didn't buy it back then. They rejected it, but that was his plan. But 22 years later, he's one of the 56 guys who signs the Declaration of Independence announcing that we're going to become a new nation. So we're headed the way he wanted to go. Seven years after that, he's one of only three guys who signed the peace treaty to end the American Revolution, thus securing America as an independent nation. And then four years after that, he's sitting at the Constitutional Convention helping create the United States of America. He's been dreaming about this for 33 years. Finally, here it is. Now, and by the way, this is Franklin right there. You see... See him there with the yellow circle around him, white-haired guy. He's an old man at this point. He's by far the eldest man at the convention, 81 years old. And that's not particularly impressive because the average lifespan in America today is 80 years old. So 81, 80, we're used to that. Except, you know what the average lifespan was in America when they signed the Constitution? Average lifespan in America was 33 years old. Now, if you happen to be a high school senior and you're here tonight, and if you had been alive back then you would have already had your midlife crisis. I mean, once you hit 17, it's more than half over for you. You're sliding when you hit 17. So he's 81 years old. He's loving this. This is what he's wanted for 33 years. He's, well, he was loving it the first. Day after day, he didn't love the way it was headed because five weeks into the convention, it was literally falling apart. Delegates were headed out of there. They were disgusted with the proceedings. Uh, and the problem was everybody came with their own state agenda. You had the New York plan, the Virginia plan, the Connecticut plan, the New Jersey plan. New Jersey guys didn't want the New York plan. New York guys didn't want the Connecticut plan. Connecticut guys didn't want the Virginia plan. And so what happens, all the fighting and bickering, guys start leaving. Alexander Hamilton, he's headed back to New York. He's got better things to do than waste his time fighting with everybody else. George Mason, Virginia, he's out of there. Got better things to do with his time. 
So this thing is falling apart in front of his eyes. And as it does, Franklin gave the longest speech he gave at the Constitutional Convention, Thursday, June the 28th, 1787. Let's just see what Franklin told the other delegates in his speech. He said, gentlemen, he said, in this situation of this assembly, groping, as it were, in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? He said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. And a little time out here, back then we didn't have a bicameral system. We had one Congress, but it had two chaplains, and we prayed a ton. Matter of fact, by 1815, I'll show you more about this later, by 1815 there had been 1,400 government-issued calls to prayer in America. I mean, we prayed all the time. And Franklin said, guys... This is the room that 11 years ago we were in. We signed the declaration right here. Don't you remember? We used to pray all the time. He said, our prayers, sir, were heard. And they were graciously answered. He said, all of us engaged in the struggle must have observed a frequent instance of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He said, I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers employing the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, may I point out that's not bad for your least religious founding father. I mean, here's your least religious founding father, admittedly one of the five least religious, and he's chewing the other guys out for not praying enough. Notice, least religious is a comparative term. He's the least religious of those guys. You stack him up against most Christians today, he's got them beat hands down. I mean, no qu- Now, here's, here's what I want you to see. In that little speech that he gave, that speech was 14 sentences long. That 14-sentence long speech, here is the question I have for you. How many Bible verses did Ben Franklin just quote in that speech? Answer is 14. He quoted 14 Bible verses. This is what Ben Franklin just quoted in that speech. Do you recognize 14? Probably not today. If you had recognized 14, we would praise you. Say, that's remarkable. Can't believe you saw 14. Isn't that amazing that today we would praise you for knowing it, but back then even the least religious founding father knew the Bible well enough to quote it 14 times in a speech. What a contrast. And by the way, the rest of the story is pretty interesting. The records of the convention, writings to delegates indicate that after Franklin gave that speech, they took three days off of the convention. Kind of like a cooling off period. Let's back away a little bit. George Washington talked about how they went to church. They listened to patriotic orations. And so there they go to church for three days, listen to patriotic orations. But while they're at church, the Reverend William Rogers has a prayer over the Constitutional Convention. And it's not a dinky little civic prayer like we might offer today over a city council or state legislature. No, no, no. He, he, he prayed. I mean, everybody in Philadelphia knows the Constitutional Convention is falling apart. People are leaving town. And it's all over town. This thing is, is shot. It's over. And he's got, the, he's got the Constitution Convention right in front of him in church. They're in church. They're listening to patriotic orations. They've got three days off. They're here. And he prays over them. And I actually have the original prayer that he prayed. 
And that prayer that he prayed was actually printed on the front page in the newspapers because everybody knew what was happening. You need to see the prayer that was prayed. That prayer on the front page in the newspaper took up three-fourths of the front page in the newspaper. It was a serious time of prayer. Now, after they got back together, three days off, go to church, listen to patriarchal orations, have time of prayer, they got back together, and delegates like Jonathan Dayton said, for the first time, the atmosphere had changed. In other words, what was a really stupid idea last week is it's really not all that bad an idea. And so they go from five weeks of fighting and bickering and no success to coming back together. There's a different atmosphere. And ten weeks later, they come out with the Constitution of the United States, the most successful written governing document in the history of man. Now, that's a pretty remarkable turnaround. And by the way, if you know the Bible and if you read the Constitution, you find Bible verses all throughout the Constitution. Now, today we hear that the Constitution is a secular document. There's a book written by two professors, Cornell University, Kramnik and Moore. They, they call the book the Godless Constitution. Because you see, the founding fathers were generally godless, but they definitely created a godless constitution. When somebody tells me the Constitution is a secular document or that it's godless, what they have really done is they have just told me that they are biblically illiterate. They wouldn't recognize a Bible verse if it bit them in the ankle. Because there's Bible verses. But see, today we feel a compulsion that we have to tell people when we're quoting the Bible. Otherwise, they don't know. Now, John 3.16 says, and of course, Job 3.25. Don't forget Isaiah 5. So we, we're always telling you. what. The, back then, they didn't feel a compulsion to have to tell you what the Bible said. Because we read it every year in school. And we read it outside of school. And we knew it. Even Franklin could quote it that well. So what a change we have. Now, this was so much an evident part of American history that even if you take one of our least religious presidents like Andrew Jackson, even for Andrew Jackson, it was no-brainer. Andrew Jackson said the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. You also have President Zachary Taylor. President Zachary Taylor is a war hero. His nickname is Old Rough and Ready. Zachary Taylor said, the Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone. It's indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institution. There they go again. He didn't say our faith. He said the Bible is indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. You see, they understood that the Bible built those institutions, and if you want them to work well, to be safe and secure and enduring, you've got to keep the Bible. And isn't it interesting that the more secular our institutions become, the less well they operate. The more secular education becomes, the less well it operates. As a matter of fact, we, average, we love, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there's your heart also. There's no question that America's treasure is in education. That's our heart because we put $460 billion a year into education at county, local, state, federal. $460 billion, so definitely our, our hearts in education. And we average spending $164,000 for a student to go from, from first grade through 12th grade. That's the average of, of tax dollars that we spend to educate a student. For the last 15 years, 19% of high school graduates cannot read a word on their diploma. They are completely illiterate. Whoa. 164,000 a year, and for the last 15 years, 19% of our folks can't read at all. You see, back in 1962, America was number one in the world in literacy. We said, oh, we don't need God in schools anymore. We're now down at 68th in the world in literacy. Quite, and by the way, there's only about 23 industrial nations in the world. So we're way down among the third world nations in the rate of literacy we have, the reading rate we have. 
You look at judiciary, the more secular it becomes, the less well judiciary operates. It's no longer representative of the people or of their values or anything else. You look at government, the more secular it becomes, the less well it operates. You look at economics, the more secular it becomes, the less well it operates. Now you've got all the crony capitalism, everybody's stuffing their pockets. No longer do we have the benevolence that used to characterize the giving that we did. It, it's just a real... But see, that's what he said. He said... It's indispensable. The Bible's indispensable to safety and permanence of our institutions. He continued. He said, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young. It is the best school book in the world. I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. Best school book in the world. He can't say that. That's unconstitutional. He can't. Isn't it ironic that for us to do today in America what we did for well over three centuries is now suddenly unconstitutional? And you see that... The, the reason it wasn't before was because we actually know our history. And the reason we had Bible in school, take you back to founding father Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush signed the declaration. John Adams said Benjamin Rush is one of the three most notable founding fathers. John Adams said you got George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. Never heard of the guy today. Well, he started the Sunday school movement in America, started the first Bible society in America, did the first faith-based prison reform in America. He did sign the Declaration. He ratified the Constitution and served in three different presidential administrations. He's the most famous doctor in American history. He made medical cures 200 years ago. We still benefit from today. There were 3,000 kids that got their medical degrees with his signature on the diploma. He was a professor of medicine in three universities at the same time. He's the first professor of chemistry in the United States, wrote the first chemistry textbook, wrote the first psychiatry textbook in American history. Um, he, he was... Excuse me, he was involved in education. He started five universities, three of them still go today. Huge civil rights leader. He founded the National Abolition Movement in America, ran the National Abolition Movement, helped build the first black denomination in America, the AME Church, first AME Church in America. He helped to train the first black physicians. He brought academic education to women first. I mean, what the guy did is unbelievable, and we've never heard his name today. I mean, he's just disappeared. Among other things, he's called the father of public schools under the Constitution. And you would think a nation that spends $460 billion a year on its public schools might appreciate the guy who started those public schools. Not so. You see, what happened was 1787, they write the Constitution. 1778, he's one of the guys who ratifies it. 1789, we now start the federal government, George Washington's president. And he says, okay, now that we're no longer 13 colonies, we're now a nation what do we have to teach in public schools if we're going to remain a nation and not fragment and fall apart? If we're going to stay together, what do we have to teach? And on March the 10th, 1791, he came out with this piece giving a dozen reasons we would never take the Bible out of schools. If America is going to stay a nation, we've got to keep the Bible. And he gave a dozen reasons we'd never take it out. Now, this is the father of public schools under the Constitution. I can show you so many other founders that said the same thing about keeping the Bible in schools. You don't take it out. We read through the Bible. Even Thomas Jefferson, another of our five least religious founding fathers, when he was president of Washington, when he was president of the United States, he's the first president to have a full term in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., according to the Constitution, is to be operated by the federal government. It's not a state because we don't want a state there because that competes with the other states. By having not a state there, then you don't have the jealousy of the other states saying, hey, all the federal jobs are in your state. Not, so that's not there. So D.C. cannot become a state. It has to remain part of the federal government. So the federal government runs it. And Thomas Jefferson was made the president of the school board for Washington, D.C. public schools. Now imagine that. You're a president of a local school board while you're president of the United States. Jefferson authored the plan of education for Washington, D.C. public schools and put the Bible in as the primary reading text in Washington, D.C. Jefferson? I thought he was a secularist. Again, he's the least religious of those guys. 
where Jefferson is compared to us today, he's so far right, the ACLU, there's not enough adjectives for them to describe where he is. He puts the Bible in public schools as the primary, yep. And the other book he put in public schools as the primary reading text was Isaac Watts Hymnals. Isaac Watts Hymnals, that, that's where you get Joy to the World and Am I a Soldier of the Cross and all these famous doctrinal hymns. Those are the two books from which you learn to read in Thomas Jefferson's system of education in Washington, D.C. public schools. So this is what we routinely, regularly had. It was so evident that when it reached the U.S. Supreme Court in 1844 in a case called Vidal versus Girard's Executors, in a unanimous decision, the U.S. Supreme Court said, whoa, 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 if you're a public school and don't want to teach the Bible, if you're government-run, government-operated, government-administrated, don't want to teach the Bible, you don't have to, but you do have to go become a private school. Because if you're going to be a government-run, government-operated school, we're not going to fund any government school that won't teach the Bible. Did you hear that in your history class when you went through school? 8-0, unanimous to see. What we hear about today is modern history, like what the Supreme Court did in 1963. The two rulings, Abbott and Shemp and Murray Curlette, the U.S. Supreme Court, for the first time in our history, said, mm, this thing about the Bible in school, mm, we're not going to do that anymore. Now, these justices that made that ruling in 62-63... They said that taking the Bible out of schools was, according to them, without either historical or legal precedent. What? They said there's no precedent historically or legally for taking the Bible. Then why did you do it? If you want to know, you read the decision. I've been involved in seven cases, U.S. Supreme Court. You ever want to know what the court does, what it does, why it does it? You read the decision. So you read the decision, this is what you see. If portions of the New Testament were read with that explanation, they could be and had been psychologically harmful to the child. We've just discovered the Bible causes brain damage. We've got to save our kids from brain I would argue that America suffered massive brain damage since we've taken the Bible out of schools. You know, forgive me for being blunt for a moment. I'm a cowboy from Texas, and I just a couple weeks ago, I was up in the Badlands in North Dakota with some other cowboys doing a roundup. And so, you know, you go down through all the hollows and all the ravines and all the crevices and chase the cattle out. You get them up on the plateau. You, you herd them and you run them. We had about, I don't know, 1,200, 1,600 cows that ran across there. And we got them all pinned up up on top, and we had about 580 calves that we had to deal with. And so we got to brand them and put ear tags in them. There's three vaccinations you have to give them. And so there's cowgirls and cowboys all working up there together, probably about 50 of us working those 580. We worked about 100 calves an hour. And you know what? 580 calves, and neither the cowboys nor the cowgirls, none of us ever questioned whether one was a male or female, whether one was a calf or whether one was a heifer. Or, nobody had any questions. It's evident to everybody except those today. And then we're not sure how many genders there are. Now, everything else in the world has got two. In America, we now have officially 82 different genders at this point. Matter of fact, we have a Christian college in New England that currently offers, a Christian college offers dorm housing to 15 different sexual identities and genders. And they don't offer male and female, but you get to choose from one of the other 15 for your sexual... What? I mean, everything in nature was real simple. Four times in the Bible it says, and God made them male and female. End of story. That's it. But see, we seem to have brain damage today because we don't understand simple stuff that nature understands, that God's put in nature. We don't understand simple little phrases in the Bible that God made them male and female. So it's been a real change. Now, having said that, coming back to reality, my commentary is over there for a moment, but it just drives me crazy how stupid we appear to be today in so many logical areas. Coming back to, to where we are, 
to where we are now is very accurately described by Dr. Benjamin Rush. Again, he's the, the father of public schools. And this is what he said. He said, the Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. We now know statistically that he was right. We have study after study that shows the older you are, the harder it is to start reading the Bible. When you start reading the Bible in your four, five, or six, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, you start reading it there, it's a whole lot easier than trying to start reading when you're a teenager in high school. A whole lot easier there than when you become a senior in college. A whole lot easier there than when you become 25, 26, or 35. The older you get, the harder to start reading the Bible. Well, see, we've gone through now about 60 years, of 55 years of, of not doing the Bible down here. And so we now, for the first time, have the most biblically illiterate nation that we've ever had in American history. We've never been this biblically led. Even Franklin and Jefferson knew the Bible back then, and they're the least religious guys. Where we are today, we're not able to even identify major issues. I chose every one of these issues because the Bible specifically addresses every one of them in detail. The Bible talks about taxation, whether it be capital gains tax or whether it be a state tax or progressive taxation or capitation taxation. We have seven cases this year at the U.S. Supreme Court dealing with the rights of conscience. Now, the rights of conscience, that should be a no-brainer for any Christian because the New Testament alone has 30 verses on conscience. And four of those verses tell you to craft your public policies to protect the rights of conscience. We don't know, well, no, everybody's got to be able to have their own belief. And, and, you know, businesses businesses can't have a conscience. Now, you can have a conscience in church, but Hobby Lobby or Little Sisters of the Poor or those guys, they, they, they shouldn't be doing that in their business. Time out. If you know the Bible, that's a no-brainer. There's 30 verses on that. Four of them say craft policies, protect the rights of conscience. See, every one of those aspects is biblically covered. But today, it is like foreign concept to so many folks in America. So where we are, and again, going back to Benjamin Rush, he has a great quote. He said, Dr. Rush said that the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in its present state than any other book in the world. Now, today we tend to spiritualize things. Oh, he's talking about spiritual knowledge. If you want to grow in the spirit, you no, he said the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in his present state. If it's science you're looking for, God's a great scientist. He invented everything out there. He created everything that has to do with science, which is why you'll find the greatest scientists in American history were also theologians. Do you know that uh, you, you take people like Bacon, Francis Bacon? He's called the father of modern science. He did inductive reasoning. He, did all, he wrote more on theology than he did on science. You take Isaac Newton, who gave us the laws of motion, laws of gravity. He did all these things on optics. Newton wrote more on theology than he did on science. Unbelievable. Kepler, Copernicus, Van Leeuwenhoek, uh, Mendelssohn, all, all these guys that made huge contributions were not secular guys. They were Christian guys who got in the Word of God. I'll give an example of how this worked. This is a guy we used to talk about that we rarely talk about in textbooks anymore. His name is Matthew Mari. Matthew Mari is called the father of oceanography. Matthew Mari Father of oceanography is the guy who discovered the jet streams that were in the ocean. In other words, he found out that if you'll, if you'll move your ship over here about 50 miles, you'll be in a current that will take you to Europe a week faster than all the other ships over here. And that's huge in commercial shipping. Now, what's amazing about that, Matthew Murray grew up listening to founding fathers give speeches. He grew up listening to James Madison. All this. He grew up in the early 1800s. And he loved the sea. He went to sea as a, as a little single-digit kid, and he went as a cabin boy. And he worked his way up to becoming a sailor. And he worked his way up to becoming an officer. And he worked his way up to becoming a ship captain. And he worked his way up to owning ships. I mean, he loved the sea. And one day he was ashore, 
got in a stagecoach accident, shattered his leg. His leg never grew back right, so he couldn't go back to sea. The love of his life, it's what he has enjoyed his whole life, it's gone, but he still had a passion for the sea. And so as he studies, he finds these jet streams. Now, I want you to think of what he found because, you know, if you want to go from Europe to South America or, or to Africa, you've got to get over in this current. And if you want to go from Africa to Australia, you get over here. And so he's got all this plot. How do you do that without satellite technology? Back in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, how do you identify? How do you even know that there's jet streams? He answered that question. He said he found it in Psalm 8. What happened was one day he was home sick. He asked his family to read the Bible out loud to him, and they began reading, and they read to him from that passage. And that passage in Psalm 8 says, Lord, thou madest man to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes the paths of the sea. Whoa, read that again. See, what jumped out of him was whatever passes through the paths of the sea. I've been on the sea my whole life. I've never seen a path. Read it again. And he kept thinking, if God says there's paths in the sea, there are paths in the sea. I'm going to find the paths that God said. And that's where he started looking, and that's how he found the paths in the sea. was because the Bible says there are paths in the sea. Anybody who's watched Finding Nemo knows there's paths in the sea. I mean, my gosh. Where did that come from? God put them there. So that's why he's called the father of oceanography. But it doesn't stop just with the father of oceanography. He also used another verse that had a huge impact on what he did. That other verse was Ecclesiastes 1.6, which says this. It says, the wind goes toward the south and turns around toward the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. The wind has a circuit, south and north. It's, whoa. And he started getting into that, which is why he's also the guy who discovered jet streams in the air. Now, again, technology being what it is, how do you do that? But he did. And because he's, oh, see the, way the, see the way the winds are going? You don't want to set sail this week. Wait till next week, and you set sail. It's going to be really good. But he's the first guy in history to be able to accurately predict weather. He's called the father of naval meteorology. He found out that there's certain things that go with cloud formation certain ways, and certain, all out of the Bible. So here's the guy who's the father of naval meteorology, the father of oceanography, all the stuff that he did. And, you know, of course, today... We, we hear that science and, and, and religion are incompatible. Science, you Christians are a bunch of Neanderthals. You don't know anything about science and Bibles. Anti- well, he got this anti-science stuff back in his day. This is what they told him. He said, I've been blamed by men of science, both in this country and in England, for quoting the Bible in confirmation of the doctrines of physical geography. The Bible, they say, was not written for scientific purposes and is therefore of no authority in matters of science, which is exactly what we hear today. Science and the Bible, they don't go together. He says they do too. He said, I beg pardon. He said, the Bible is authority for everything it touches. The Bible is true and science is true. They're both true. And when you're men of science, with vain and hasty conceit, announce the discovery of disagreement between them. In other words, when your people, your scientists say, oh, science and Christianity are incompatible, he says, rely on it. He said, the fault is not with the witness or his records. It's not God's issue. He says, with the worm, the sinful human who attempts to interpret evidence which he does not understand. He said, when science and Bible contradict, you hang on because the Bible will end up being right in this thing. Now, we have a national radio program that we do, about 200 stations. And about once every two weeks, I love taking scientific reports that have come out in journals of science that nobody's talking about where they said, "Mm, we've had it wrong for the last three decades 
this is what's right. Well, this is what's right. It's what the Bible said was right years ago. Real simple. You know, one, one of the easy things, whether you want to go to John 1, whether you want to go to Psalm 139, whether you want to go to Jeremiah 1, so many passages talk about life, unborn being life. Jeremiah is told, before you were conceived, I knew you. Life in the womb. You know, what happened with, with Jesus and with John the Baptist? Remember with, with Elizabeth? There's just so many passages. So we've known from the beginning that embryonic stem cell research is not right because you're killing what's in the womb to create a medical cure. Now, embryonic stem cell research, in, in Bill Clinton's administration, they called it fetal tissue research. And if you remember, he wanted funding for it because that was going to be the, the, the thing that would cure all diseases. It's going to cure spinal cord injuries. It's going to cure uh, diabetes. It's going to cure cancer. All these things. It, it was the cure-all, so we poured millions into it. And then we keep moving through time, and it became an issue under President Bush. And he said, no, we're not going to destroy embryos. Then we came to the next president. Yes, we are. It's interesting that now we've had 50 years of embryonic stem cell research. To date, they have zero cures. Now, adult stem cell research is the other kind of research. An adult stem cell, and don't confuse the word adult. Adult doesn't mean you're 18 years old. Adult means you've been born. So 15 seconds after you're born, they can take the placenta, they can take the umbilical cord, they can take the stem cells out of there, and that's adult stem cells. Currently, there are more than 100 cures off adult stem cells, all sorts of cancer, all sorts of uh, spinal cord injuries, all sorts of corneal stuff. That, that 100 cures there, no cures over here. Hmm. Could it be the Bible was actually right? Yeah. Since God is the best scientist that's ever lived in history, since he, in, he invented science, he knows how it works. And see, that's what we do every two weeks. We just go through all these new scientific things, and it doesn't matter whether it deals with the environment, whether it deals with phys- physiology, whether it deals with sexuality. It does not matter what it deals with in science. And I was a math and science guy. I went to college on a math and science scholarship. I taught math and science in high school. I love math and science. I keep up with that kind of stuff. The Bible keeps coming up. You just never hear it. These guys never say, we've had it wrong the last 30 years. The Bible is right. They don't go there. And what they do is they put, put these studies out, and you just don't hear anything about them. But that's what I love doing. So all that to say, we don't know anything today about Matthew Murray at all. And he's one of the great heroes. You would think that the guy who, created, that, who invented weather prediction and the guy who did so much for commercial shipping, we might talk about it. Not so, because he's way too religious. See, same thing with John Adams. John Adams talks specifically about the constitutional separation of powers. Now, the three branches of government come out of the Bible, Isaiah 33, 22. Three branches of government is no big deal. We've had that for a long time. Most governments have three branches of government. What we did was added constitutional separation of powers, whereby we checked and balanced the three branches. We didn't let one branch run the other two until the last few years. Now we let the courts run everything. But back in the day, the way the Constitution was written, you had check and balance everywhere. Now, that's what's made American government more unique than any other feature. That's what's caused us to survive longer than any other was we had checks and balance and separation. Where did they get that? John Adams has numerous writings said, well, we actually found that in Jeremiah 17.9. And, and by the way, George Washington cites the same, Alexander Hamilton. This is the, the principle in Jeremiah 17.9 is where we learned we have to separate powers and have checks and balances. Really, that unique feature of American government, and they talk about a Bible verse as being the basis of that. And you also have folks like James Kent. James Kent's considered the father of American jurisprudence. He's the guy who we point to as one of the two guys who gave us our judicial system today. 
And back in the day when they started the courts, they started circuit court judges. And by the way, the U.S. Supreme Court today is still a circuit court. We don't think of it that way. Back then, they got on their horses and rode the circuit. They don't ride the circuit now, but they do it electronically. You see, every Supreme Court justice has to ride the circuit electronically. There is a circuit that he's responsible for, he or she's responsible for. They used to do it on horseback. They do it on electronics today. Where did we get this deal of circuit court judges? According to James Kent, the father of American jurisprudence, we found that in 1 Samuel 7, verses 15 and 16. And then we have things like Ben Franklin talking about medicine. Matter of fact, Ben Franklin created the first hospital in America. He's the founder of the healthcare system in America. The Pennsylvania Hospital started in 1751. He actually created the logo. If you walk into the Pennsylvania Hospital today, on the right side of the door as you walk in, is the logo that Ben Franklin created, and it tells you exactly why he created a healthcare system. And he quotes from Luke 10:35 as the reason he did so. And then if you look at the written constitution we have, Alexander Hamilton, he, he talks, he quotes right out of Luke 11:20 and Exodus 31:18 as the reason for a written constitution. Now, we didn't have a written constitution because everybody else did. I mean, Great Britain was our parent country. We were under her for 200 years essentially. To this day, Great Britain does not have a written constitution. So we weren't copying Great Britain. Come with, So why did we get a written constitution? That's the verses that they quoted. As a matter of fact, you have James Madison quoting the same verse. So there's verse after verse after verse that they talked about that we don't know today. And, and by the way, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, that's exactly why we did what's called the Founder's Bible. We just took the Bible verses they wrote about because, again, we have thousands of their writings, and they write, and if you recognize the Bible, you say, look what he said, and you go over here and say, that's what he applied it to in government or in science or in education or in whatever, music, anything. And so that's what the Founder's Bible does. Now, the problem we have in America today is a very simple problem, and the simple problem we have is right there. That's the problem we've got. The average American family owns 4.4 Bibles. Now, massive study on the Bible reading that was done last year finds that only 9% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. That's just reading the Bible. When you ask how many have actually read the Bible from cover to cover among Christians today, you're down around 3 to 4%. That's all that have ever read the Bible. So it's hard to have a biblical worldview if you don't know what the Bible says about the world. We're told in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, let this mind be in you which is in Christ. You, you want to know the mind of Christ? You get in God's word because that's where you find the mind of Christ. That's his thinking. He is deity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the mind of real simple stuff. So it's hard to know the mind of Christ or to think biblically if you don't know what's in the Bible. Now, taking this back to where we were in previous generations, John Quincy Adams, I started with him, and I'll finish this first session with him. John Quincy Adams wrote so much about the Bible that in 1848, they produced a book for 10-year-old Americans showing 10-year-old Americans how to read through the Bible from cover to cover once every year. You imagine what would happen today if any president of the United States wrote a book for 10-year-old Americans showing them how to read the Bible cover to cover once a year? He did. And this is what he told students in that book. He said, students, he says, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. He says... I have myself for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. And he did that. We have 68 years of his diary. Uh, this guy spent 70 years in public office. He started public office when he's 11 years old uh, in a diplomatic position. He got a, a congressional appointment when he was 14 years old, a second congressional appointment when he was 15 years old. 
Guy's unbelievable. He, he, he served in diplomatic corps for a number of years, foreign ambassador to five different nations. Uh, he becomes a U.S. senator. Uh, he's a secretary of state. He's the president of the United States. He spent 17 years in the House of Representatives. He was appointed and confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Busy public life. He says, I've been at my practice to read the Bible once every year. And he went on to tell the kids, he said, I, I start every morning with an hour in the Scriptures. I usually read four or five chapters, and that's what he's telling them. And by the way, to read through the Bible cover to cover once every year, you only have to read three chapters a year. It takes you about 15 minutes. But he liked spending an hour in God's Word. And I will tell you, um, these guys, it's, it's pathetically embarrassing to read what they have to say. For example, he kept that diary for 68 years. And on Sunday, he always tells you who preached the sermon, what they preached about, and what verses they used. And then right after that, he writes in the verses they should have used that would have made the sermon better. He critiques every sermon. It's just. And then he spends not one hour, but he spends several hours on Sunday afternoon reading the scriptures. And I remember reading in his diary one day, and he said, well, it appears to me that Romans 8, that the French didn't do a bad job translating it out of the Greek, but I think the Russians did a better job. Now, also... He spoke seven languages. He read the Bible in seven languages, compared them all back to the original language. That's a political guy who spent 70 years in office who's that busy and finds the time to get into God's Word like that. So he says, I myself for many years have made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. He said, I've always endeavored to read it with the same spirit which I now recommend to you. Ten-year-olds, listen to me. I want to recommend that you read the Bible like I read the Bible, and I'm recommending to you that you read it with the intention and desire that may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. Whenever I read the Bible, it is not a spiritual devotional book. I'm always looking for something practical to apply that will change the way I think, my wisdom. I want something practical to apply that will change the way I act, my virtue. I'm looking for practical things. And and I'll tell you, as you go through his diary, and his diary is a cool read. He finds all these verses that apply to things we just don't even think about today. But that was the character of what they did back then. So they read the Bible from cover to cover once a year. Now, here's my challenge. If you have never read the Bible through from cover to cover... Make a commitment that 12 months from tonight, you will have read through the Bible from cover to cover. Again, easy thing, three chapters, 15 minutes a day. It is the greatest book in the history of mankind. It's produced more inventions, more discoveries, more stability, more innovation than any other book in the world. We just don't know that in American history today. The evidence is back there very extensively. And if you are one of those who have read the Bible through from cover to cover, if you're one of that 3 to 4%, then over the next months, 12 months, read it through again. Uh, one of our founding fathers, Elias Boudno, he was the, the president of Congress who signed the peace treaty in the American Revolution. He's essentially George Washington's boss. He's the <clears throat> first attorney admitted to the Supreme Court bar. He is a framer of the Bill of Rights in the first Congress. He got George Washington to do the first federal Thanksgiving proclamation. Elias Boudno, when he was 77 years old, founded the American Bible Society. He's a great founding father. American Bible Society is the largest Bible society in the world today. It puts out millions of Bibles every year. And when he found it, 77 years old, he found it and he said, I've read through the Bible more than 50 times in my life. He said, and every time I read through it, I see things I have never seen before, which is the characteristic of the Bible. The Bible calls itself unsearchable. You'll never get to the bottom of the wisdom. You go through the first time and you'll get this much and then God will take you a little deeper the next time and a little deeper the next time. And he's gone through it 50 times and he still finds new stuff every time. So if you've read it before, if you've read it five times, make it six. If you've read it 22 times, make it 23. If you've read it 50 times, make it 51. Make that your practice to go through the Bible from cover to cover once every year. 
God's got a great promise for us out of Joshua 1.8. This is what he tells us. He says, constantly think about my word every day and every night. She'll be sure to obey it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Real simple. The more you get into God's word and do what it says, the more prosperous and successful you'll be. And you see, that's why America's been different from other nations. Not that we don't have warts in our nose. We've got plenty of warts in our nose. We probably have less warts in our nose than most other nations. And as President Franklin pointed out, Franklin Roosevelt pointed out, when things were going right, it's because we were applying what was in the Bible. When they weren't going right, we were ignoring what the Bible taught. But that knowledge of the Bible that we had at least let us make some decisions that moved us in the right direction more than any other nation in the world. And see, that's what it's going to take to recover it. So if you'll get the Bible, if you'll read it, start applying it, amaze what it'll do in your life. Even if you're already successful and prosperous now, you have no clue what the Bible will do. It'll, it'll make that exponential. Your family, business that you're in, here at church, the country. And that's the whole key to getting back. We're a biblically illiterate nation right now. And that's why we're struggling the way we're struggling. You're not going to fix that with any significant political leader until the people themselves get back to understanding the principles that made the nation great. And those principles are in God's word. So if you're interested in this kind of stuff, we do have a book table out there that you can go and, and, and see this kind of stuff and look over it. Um, but that's what I wanted to share for starting kind of set the tone on how we thought about the Bible for a number of years and what we need to do individually. And it comes back to us. We want the nation fixed. I wish there was a simple cure. There is a simple cure. And that's us knowing the Bible, getting back into it.